I bought a jigsaw, but I don't think I'm going to do it. Oh, there's no way. It's just going to stay in the cupboard and become someone's gift. If I get a puzzle in Kris Kringle this year, then I know where it came from. Yeah, I know. I know. I'm sorry. Hello and welcome to the Pending Approval Podcast, a talk show highlighting the ups, the downs and those complete head fuck moments of the business world. I'm your host for the show, Glenda Wynyard, producer G to keep me on track again, as well as our real hero of the podcast, the technical recording guru called Pat. Hi guys. Hello. How's it going? What the fuck? We're in lockdown again. I know. It's really not good. It's really not good. I'm actually very much over this. So what have you been doing to keep sane? Working. I've taken a lot of naps recently, actually. Naps are becoming my new thing. You shouldn't say that to your boss. Well, I've got to keep it real sometimes, you know. Oh, my God. Okay. Naps in the afternoon. Don't let the others know. Now, I'm a bit nervous today, G. I know, so am I. I'm actually very nervous about this one. I know, the tables are about to be turned and we've got a guest who's going to be asking all the questions. I hope you're on your game. Well, it's not me that I'm worried about, let's be honest. I know, I know, I know. Prue Carlton is with us in the studio, remotely, of course, in line with all good things that are COVID and lockdown standards. How are you, Prue? I'm great. I'm really excited to be here. I'm excited that you're here too. Well, I kind of am excited. But I'm a bit nervous at the same time. So Prue is the National Marketing Communications Manager. That's a mouthful, Prue, for Konica Minolta. Many of our listeners really grapple with the understanding of what it is that an agency does. So a media agency or a creative agency. And in order to help them, Prue is going to be asking us the questions. And she's going to ask us what it is that we do as business consultants. Like, it makes sense. Often, advertising and media expenditure is one of the highest costs that an organization has outside of their staff, which is massive, right? Like, when you really put that into perspective, if you've got 50 people, you're really paying more than that for your media spend and all your creative development. So it makes sense that they might want to explore advertising to really understand the different types of companies that make up the marketing wheel. Yes. So hi, Prue. Welcome to the Pending Approval Podcast. How are you faring during COVID? Oh, yeah, it's that it's that Zoom intro, isn't it? And you're all chatting about um, how everyone's doing. So yeah, it feels like it's going a little long on a little long here in Sydney. But yeah, enjoying the morning walks. I'm teaching myself macrame actually. Oh, yeah. really? Yeah. Have you noticed like last YouTube. time? Last time it was all about cooking, and this time it's all about crafts and hobbies. I've started making my own um, DIY ceramics. Prue, love it. Yeah, although they're not very good. But I accidentally ordered a really large reel of rope. So I think it might, <laughs> might have to go beyond COVID. I don't know. I wonder if it will carry on beyond COVID. It could be a side hustle. Could be. You never know. You never know. Get a website one, up there. One little pot holder at a time, yeah. I bought a jigsaw, but I don't think I'm going to do it. Oh, there's no way. It's just going to stay in the cupboard and become someone's gift. I can really? feel it. It's just one of those things that you put on the table, though, Glenda, and I do know. a little bit at a time. But you don't get it. I get really irritated by anything that's not undone, so I'll become obsessed with it and I'll have to just finish it off because it will irritate me that it's sitting on my table half done. If I get a puzzle in Kris Kringle this year, then I know where it came from. Yeah, I know. I know. I'm sorry. Now, Prue, we've been working together, what, about four or five years now? Mm, yeah. And in that time, your role has really evolved quite tremendously within the organisation. And it's very interesting because you've worked not only here in Australia, but also at a global level too with with some of the work that you've been doing. So we always like to kick off the show with a bit of a bio. So can you tell us what you've been up to and how you got to where you are in your career? Great. Yeah, sure. Um, so I'd probably say I've always been a bit of a marketer at heart. From even young age, I love the idea of packaging things. And so probably this idea of taking something really complex and making it into something that's accessible for people uh, and connects with people, that's been a theme always that I've had. So um, I've got this really creative side of me and then I've got a side of me that's quite structured and so um, and even a little part that's a bit techy as well. 
And so that's how I landed in marketing because it's kind of like a really perfect blend of all of those things. So then career, yeah. So as you said, I'm, I'm currently National Marketing Communications Manager at Conica Minolta Australia, um, which is a multinational tech company. Um, and I've done lots of different roles there. So um, to give you a bit of an idea of the scope of KM, uh, in Australia it's a 450-employee, $250 million turnover business selling a range of products and from things, everything from office technologies to 3D printers and robotics. Some fun, fun tech in there. So I spent most of my career in B2B marketing roles um, and range of different businesses selling, you know, physical products to services and that kind of thing. So, and then, as you said, Glenda, I've had a lot of different roles at KM, actually. So in my early years at KM, I established from pretty much nothing, actually, the um, digital marketing program and capability. So it's quite a traditional industry, the print industry. You don't say pro. Yeah, very. Yeah, it is. A very, well, actually, it's really funny because in those early years when I was um, working on setting all of that up, I actually had even one of the industry magazines want to interview me about our Facebook marketing campaign because no one was doing that. So crazy. It, was, it was really, and that wasn't even early days. It was later on. It was really quite, you know, challenging culturally for the business and sort of in in the industry as well. So that role, uh, Glenda, as you said, the global uh, capacity, that role kind of led to a global one um, with the company. And I was then heading a transformation program, which was about uh, synergizing and improving the maturity of digital marketing across all the KM subsidiaries, which is about 150 subsidiaries. So 62 different teams, different cultures, different ideas, and we were, had to um, then bring all of that together to to make it, you know, one idea that was moving forward. So that was that was really challenging. So so yeah. So now I look after the local team, uh, Marcoms and digital, and I'd say probably what I love most about my job is the people. So working with some great talent, great people, um, and I'm always thinking about how to get the best out of the team. So that's why I'm really interested in the topic today. Um, because I think this is almost like a little bit of an Olympics thing, but it's almost like the baton change, isn't it? <laughs> a baton yeah, change. Yeah. I've never been thought of as being in the Olympics. Oh, well, I think we are every day. The baton change. It is true, isn't it? I think we are too. Prue, before you turn the tables on us, I do want to hear a little bit more about what marketing really is to you? Because I think it means many different things to many different people. But from your perspective, what do you include in marketing? How does how would you describe it to someone that has never really heard of it or doesn't really do it on a day-to-day basis? So as you said, I think there are a lot of different answers for this one. But I often think about marketing as being like the, the eyes and the ears and the mouth of a company. So the eyes in that you know, I tend to have a lot of exposure to lots of different parts of the business. And sometimes actually I can be the link between all of these siloed groups in the company. Um, and my days are very varied. So one day I could be speaking to, you know, the head of finance about our plans and our spend. Um, you know, other days it might be customer service or HR, different things. But our biggest stakeholder, of course, is sales. Um, a lot of strong personalities in sales, but they're right at the cold face of, of the customer. So it's really important to be in sync with those guys. And then the ears in that we're, we are actually the keepers of a huge amount of information and data about how our customers are interacting with us and how, you know, the market is changing. Um, and it's almost not even like the ears. It's almost like the brain because it's so complex and rich. Uh, and if you can get a handle on that, um, there's a lot of power in using it to make decisions in the business which means that marketing is actually becoming more and more part of that strategic business making um, and the way things work. And then so the mouth in that um, marketing, of course, is what the customer hears about us. So we're the keepers of the brand and we're the creators of the experience that they want, we want them to have with us. And I always feel that we're always also the champions of the customer's voice. 
So we spend a lot of time understanding what the customer needs, where they're at. And, of course, our reason for being uh, in B2B is, is lead generation. So we're constantly looking at tweaking and refining and improving uh, that voice to get a better result. Yeah. I love that analogy. Yeah, I love the fact that you're the brains. I wonder what the rest of them will say. What do they say? The neck, the neck that turns the head. The neck that turns the head. No, but that that is true, isn't it? Like it really, it very much is. You are the voice, and you are the listening post, and you are interacting. So that glue, or the fact that you're the you're the link between all these different parts of the business. That's actually a, that's actually very correct. Mm, mm, mm. Mm. And actually, not not all functions in a business are like that. No. Um, and so we kind of get this. I'm doing it with my hand, but like a horizontal, uh, you know, slice through the business and it's often we're kind of connecting the dots to make make things work. So, mm, Now that is really interesting. It's time. I know you've brought along some questions. We've we've submitted some questions to you. But like we said before, we wanted to open this up uh, and really turn the tables on ourselves. We've actually never had anyone ask us questions on the show. We usually do the grilling. So I'm interested to see how this goes. I'm really excited. I'm actually so fascinated to hear your response. Because so, we'll take this back and actually use what you say. So. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, shit. No pressure. That's great. All right. So let's start at the beginning. Why does a client hire an advertising or a media agency? Look, essentially agencies are tasked with creating brands and messages that cut through the clutter and also resonate with a target audience in order to meet a client's KPI or objective. So that's the that's the real reason. Often we are a little bit like you. We become great sources of information, market intelligence. We often help them solve problems that they are struggling to overcome themselves. And then we often act as a conduit between them and their customer. So it's it's bringing that customer in or, bringing the, uh, or creating a change or whatever it may be that the client needs us to achieve. We're often the organization that actually helps them meet that meet that benchmark. Just to add to that from a strategy perspective, oftentimes we're the ones that showcase where your opportunities are and where your problems actually are as well. Because sometimes when you're embedded in the business, you you can recognize what problems that you might understand currently, but there are things that people from the outside that can point out. So we might be working from different industries. We might be able to see things um, from the outside that you might not be able to see yourself at that point. So I think from a strategy perspective, it's really important that we're able to have those conversations and be that sort of trusted partner with clients. Because when or even just us, Prue, like for us being able to talk to you about your current creative and how we can develop it and what we can do to really push the brand forward, that's a really important trustworthy question uh, and conversation for us to have. So I think it's all about making sure that we can bring that insight to your business and really add that value that you might not have in-house. And we also overcome perceptions. So often a client, it's a bit like you have a perception of who you are as a person and it's the same for companies. Companies often have a perception of who they are and what their customers think about them. I often find we're neutral ground where we actually get the real picture and then often when we present it back, the clients don't want to hear it. But actually we're that sort of neutral sounding ground that sort of helps the clients navigate through some of their own misconceptions. And then from a practical perspective as well, it's also being able to have that resource available to you at a moment's notice without actually bringing on that headcount. So having a social media programmatic manager, I don't know, have I just made that up? Um, or having a creative resource on hand without having to actually pay that salary yourself um, and just allocate them whenever you need them. So it's almost like having that talent there when you need it, but not at all times. So you're not trying to figure out what I have to fill their time with or what they could be doing for the business. It's just making sure that they're focused on specific elements of a campaign, a strategy or a business piece that's really going to help support in this instance Konica Minolta but any organization that we're working with from a client point of view I feel like you're an extension of our team yeah often so I talked about the um the you know what I feel marketing is and does we, we're focused on a lot of that stuff all the time we don't have 
kind of the space, all the expertise, expertise really to, you know, add all of that side uh, to what we do. So you're an extension of the team that brings that expertise in. Yeah, and we're often like butterflies. Like we we move from um, different industries or different clients, verticals and things, so we learn things from different organisations all the way through and we collect that. So we collect what works there and what doesn't work here and it's amazing the number of times you can take a strategy that might apply to the beauty sector and then put that into the garbage sector. You know what I mean? It's really interesting what you're able to cross-fertilise and what you're able to learn and I find when we put a staff member with a client, they become the client, they get caught up in the client's business. They actually don't, they lose that. And that's what I think we offer a client too that's very different is is the fact that we are exposed to so many different organisations and ways of working. I agree. Great. I'm going to focus on the start of a campaign today. What is the best brief you've ever received and why? So for me, I always say to my clients, more is always more. The more information you can give me, the more details I can choose to ignore and the more information that's going to really help us formulate our responses. Because a lot of the times people that are writing the briefs forget that we haven't been on that journey with you. We don't understand what you're going through every single day. We don't know all the market research that you've done. We haven't had all the conversations with the sales teams. So you're really ingrained in that business. And oftentimes it's pulling as much detail out of your brains and putting it onto that piece of paper that's going to really help. And then also in saying that, a really good brief says to us that you can be as creative as you'd want to be from from a that's that's very from a creative and a strategic standpoint anyway and being able to have some freedom with it you know not putting the box around us and saying like fly within the box and figure out what you want to do saying here are the tools that you need to really push the limits and push outside of that framework that we currently have to make sure that we're reaching audiences and we're engaging with them in a way that we might not have before See, my best brief is a little bit different. So my best brief was from MasterCard and they just said uh, it was the priceless campaign and all they said was we want to be number one in wallet. So all they wanted to be was the number one credit card that everybody pulled out and at the top of the wallet. So that actually led to one of to me developing a, a an actual product for them that is still recognised as got the highest usage rate, the lowest bad debt. It's got the highest, what they call, you know, revolving creditors, so good revolvers. You know, they're people that pay their bill on time every month and they spend, you know, to the limit every month sort of thing. So they're very good. But that actually was my very, very best brief because they started right at the beginning with their single biggest KPI or objective and everything else underneath that was just the background information. They were very, very clear on what they wanted to achieve. I think having that objective right up front as well is a really key part of things. Um, we aren't superheroes. We read briefs and we get bored as well. So having things like all the exciting information right up the top, what you really want to do, what you're looking to achieve, how you're looking to achieve it and support it from an internal perspective. And then like Dub said, having all of that background information at the end where we can go through and pick and choose what information we kind of pull on and what we don't, that's a really great way for clients or anyone who's developing a brief to kind of pique our interest, you know, like we want to be told a story as well. Great. So Glenda, was that the full brief, that one line? Yeah. So they start, that wasn't the full brief. There was all the research and the intelligence and everything and all the market information uh, sitting in the background, but they started at the end. They actually said, this is what we want to be number one in wallet in this country. And so it was, we were able to then build everything from that because I always say if you start at the back of what you want to achieve, then everything behind it just falls, you know, falls into place because we know what is the end goal is straight away. Sometimes we're sifting through briefs trying to find out what the end goal is and, and very few clients actually give it to us in reality. Do you know what I mean? Like they'll say mm. they want brand awareness. Well, what brand awareness? You know, like what do you want to get to? Where are you now? What's the what's the objective? 
So, you know, that is really, really important. And I think those generic objectives like brand awareness, they're really great to have, but they should really be secondary. Like what what do you want the audience to feel when they're thinking about your brand? Or how do you want them to act when they see your brand in public? Do you want them to be raving about it? Like what do you want people to think and feel and see and do? That's the really important objective that I think a lot of briefs are missing um, especially ones that, you know, come across our desks. Okay. So tip number one, have the objective up front. <laughs> objective very up clear, front. And very clear. If you want to sell a thousand printers, then it's a thousand printers. We've got to sell a thousand printers or we've got to find, you know, whatever it may be. But it just needs, it needs to be very, very clear up front. Great. All right. Now let's, let's switch the other way. What makes a bad brief? What are some of the worst briefs you've received and why would that be? Oh, God, there's been some doozies, some absolute doozies, I would say. I think maybe one of the worst briefs I've ever received, and this is a very, very large company. Um, I used to work for a global agency, and I literally got a email with one line that said, I just want you to do this, make it happen. And like, <laughs> it doesn't happen often, you know, but if we're being realistic, that's the worst brief I've ever received. And in media, we get 90% of our briefs will be a couple of lines or they'll just be, um, I want a TV campaign or I want a digital campaign and they don't give you anything else. So, or they don't have any objectives or they just say to me, you tell me how much it's going to cost when they actually have a budget parameter. So telling us that we can go to town and we come up with a million-dollar strategy versus a $10,000 strategy, you know, like, and then they say, oh, you you know, you're joking, but we're not joking. <laughs> like, you haven't told us what the parameters are. And so you can craft campaigns based on those, you know, some of those tangible constraints and things like that. But you can't if you don't know about it. So it's not us being smart. It's us It's us trying to cover off the whole scope because you just don't know what you don't know. Do budget, you know what I mean? Budget is a really, really good thing to point yeah. out here. I think um, especially when it comes to creative, we're often spoiled with the briefs that we get, and I love that being a creative. But when clients say to us, oh, we don't have a budget, We'll, we'll find the budget for you. It's a great conversation to have, but we still need to know what the upper and lower ends of budget are because it's the difference between us saying, okay, amazing. We're going to fly to Amsterdam. We're going to have global talent. We're going to have Chris Hemsworth. Chris Hemsworth. He's going to fly in. He's going to parachute down. He's going to have drinks with Glenda. Yep. The insurance <laughs> is going to be a million dollars minimum. You and know, he's going to take his shirt off while he's having drinks with Glenda. <laughs> There's all these different things. And he's going to hold my hand while we're oh having drinks. Oh, my God. <laughs> Obviously, someone's got a crush over here. But, yeah, it, it, like the difference for me is is being able to have a robotic cine camera. You know, like I would love to be able to use one of those bad boys. And, Prue, just heads up. What is that? Oh, my goodness. I'm going to introduce you to it. Don't don't you worry. Um, but I would love to have one of those. But they're like a $25,000 hire fee for one day. And that doesn't even include the camera operator. So for me to have a concept that's focused on that robotic piece of equipment, I need to have a budget that's going to suit that as well. So that's a really, like, it's another kind of bugbear of mine. Not saying that I hate getting briefs that say, you know, we'll find the budget for it. But oftentimes I find that it leads to, we love the idea, but we've only got 15K of which my mm, robotic mm. arm does not fit into that. And then there's disappointment. So, you know, there, there's always disappointment when you can't deliver a $500,000 concept for 15 grand. <laughs> you need to tell us straight away so that we don't disappoint you. And Also, we get so excited. So excited. And I think from a creative standpoint, we pour our hearts and our souls into so these pieces media. of creative. Yeah, sure, media, all right, stay in your lane. Um, <laughs> but we put our hearts and souls into it. And when we get something that comes back and they say, great, but can you do that $500,000 concept in 15 grand? We're immediately heartbroken because we know that it's not going to be the blockbuster piece that we had imagined and had envisioned and had sold into you. And it's going to really be a shell of what 
the concept was. So if we know what we're walking into up front, we can still make a fantastic piece of work for you and it can still be amazing and award-winning and incredible but having those parameters at the start really does help us frame how we're going to like produce it or how we're going to really make it happen Mm. so okay this is interesting then what do you do if there's no budget are you approaching it conservatively because the budget could actually be bigger than you're anticipating and there's no budget there you know what I mean so you could have actually expanded your ideas? I think for me, it really depends on the client. So being able to go look back and see how they've advertised previously or what kinds of creative they've developed previously to kind of get a sense of scale. That's how I would approach it. And if there is a really fantastic, amazing idea that one of the team has developed and we think that there might be an opportunity for you to put it forward and potentially accept, then we'll do that. But again, it really depends on our experience with the brand. Yeah, because you can go, you can, like we often create different levels of scale. So we'll often say this is what you'll get for 50K or this is what you'll get for 100 or this is what 200 mm. looks like and, you know, number multipliers of or down, up and down. We do do that quite frequently. The problem that we've got is that often you, if the client hasn't got clear outcomes that actual, or objectives, that it becomes a bit of a nothing because you could spend $20 million in just like that in in a nothing campaign. All it's going to give you is a bit of awareness. It's not necessarily going to give you customers, but you have beautiful creative, you know, you'll give you all sorts of things. Well, you can achieve almost exactly the same on a much tighter budget, but you know what I mean? It's It's more to scale. So the budget is a big discussion, like is a really important, even if you set parameters, even if you say, I want you to look at anything between 500 to 2 million. And then at least we can actually scale up and scale down. And for smaller advertisers, that could be five grand to a hundred, you know, like, you know, you can, it's all, it's all relative as, as G was saying to whatever it is that you, you know, your business. So we try to kind of position it a bit like that. I was thinking of that day that you were talking to us about um, sponsoring their yacht. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember we left that meeting um, because it was, I think it was a little bit of what you just said there of where um, doing it would be, you know, a nice bit of awareness and a nice bit of creative but no kind of objective. And that's sort of where we, the way that we were, um, you know, briefing probably at the time. But what it did was it expanded our thoughts. Imagine if we could do that. Why would we do that? Imagine, okay, so. Yeah, (laughs) And so it was a really interesting, had an interesting effect on the team Um, and it stands out like I still remember it. But you're right. It's, you know, without the, the objective, it probably won't go further than that. Just that initial idea. And to use that as a as a good example, that was a strategy where these are very high performance pieces of equipment. They're full of technology. These uh, yachts, they were foil, you know, the foil yachts. So right at the very beginning of the series over here, it was the first time ever, and it was all about taking Konica Minolta and that technology and and how you were so advanced and all that type of scenario. So those beautiful brain cues, but it wasn't going to sell any more photocopiers. It was going to give you lots of mm. awareness and, and lots of ability to sort of interact from a, a sales point of view and things like that. Which, so. if anyone has ever had a conversation with me, knows that I believe that these brand campaigns are so important when it comes to the leads that you need to generate, the awareness that you need to develop. Like, I feel like a lot of people have forgotten the traditional principles of marketing and they haven't changed. In reality, the channels have changed and the audience has changed, but the principles and the foundations will always stay the same. Um, And there's always a need for us to go back and say, well, what is that top of funnel? How are we pushing people down and how are we getting to that pointy end where we get to convert them and then pull them back up to that awareness piece where we can then push them down the funnel again for another product and so on and so forth. Um, which, you know, concepts like that boat really help and support and do. 
But those sorts of things where that's, I'm assuming that was a proactive that you put forward. No, it was a response to a brief. Oh, right. Okay. Mm. Well, I can't even remember when that one came in. Oftentimes those sorts of out there thinking, that's that's a proactive piece that we put forward for a client and that's where that true insight into us being that outsider that's also a part of your business kind of comes in because we can see that connection and we can see why that worked or why it wouldn't work um, and we get thrown these sorts of things every day, right? Mm. Like there's different TV shows that are coming to us at the moment and trying to sell us in and yachts come in and people with new different um, websites and new publishers come out all the time and so we're fielding people off left right and center uh, and only the ones that we truly believe are going to work for your business actually get through to you which irritates the media owners actually this is a funny thing because when we're in a meeting where we're um, listening to you guys talk about these um, great ideas in a lot of ways you're preaching to the choir Mm. We see it and we want to see these ideas and we want to actually be um, putting some of these things into play. Um, But part of it is then the the cultural environment you're coming from, where marketing sits in the company. I've always got this in my mind, can I sell it? Yeah, exactly. Can I sell it to all those different pieces of business that you have to have the sales, the finance, the business? That's right. And the business has to be ready for it. Yeah, exactly. As well. Yeah, yeah. So is it better to have a face-to-face brief or a, a briefing document, just a briefing document? Both. Yes. Give I'm... us both. <laughs> Please give us both. Um, from a creative perspective, we want to see how excited you are about certain points. We want to hear about the things that you haven't included in the document. Like there's always all of that extra personality. There's understanding what stakeholders really believe and what points on the brief and um, where you really need to focus in on. For example, Pru, we had a brief come in recently and you said to us, it's not on the brief, but we really want to see how it works in print. And that is such a great insight that we wouldn't have got unless you took us through that brief. So that sort of thing is really what we're looking for. And then the briefing document acts as something that we get to look back on when we're going through our concepts and looking at have we actually answered point X, Y, and Z on the brief. Um, And so that's why we always ask for both and why I would always encourage a client to say, hey, I want to set up even just half an hour to talk through what we've got in the brief, it makes such a difference with the outputs that we get. Mm, and we can ask so many more questions, like uh, G saying, we can actually get behind the scenes, we can actually understand what's what the real issues are and what you've got to overcome. Because that often that's not translated into the brief. You know, the details are, the tangibles are, but not a lot of the other other nuances that we need to understand. I'm feeling that we need to do a face-to-face on the brief I sent you the other day. (laughs) (laughs) We do, we do, we always do. Uh, Great. How much does the written brief or the face-to-face brief need to excite you or or give you that kind of feeling of inspiration or do, say, you do that, G, with your team? I love to be inspired. I guess everyone likes to be inspired by anything that they get. At the end of the day, though, not everyone's going to have an exciting and inspiring brief, right? So oftentimes I am the one that has to rile the team up and get them excited about something and find that little nugget of information that um, makes that brief what it really needs to be. So it's not always just on the client, but if there is that little bit of excitement that we do get from that brief, we'll really kind of grab onto it and run with it as well. Um, And I do think it is often up to the strategists and the account managers um, or the accounts team that are really the ones that have to excite the creatives and excite the traders and the planners that are developing the different plans and strategies and um, creative responses that we're developing. Because they get a lot of fatigue, right? Like it's so many briefs that come across their desk. If you're just a graphic designer, for example, you see like four or five different types of creative brief a day um, and you're always trying to think of what's that next thing that a client's going to be excited about and you get that fatigue. And so for us, it's trying to figure out how we can stop that fatigue or how we can say to them like, look, this is the real piece of insight that we need you to focus in on and here's what's really exciting about it. Now run free and see what you can do with it. And I think from a media point of view, it's often the challenge. 
So what is the business challenge that we've got to overcome and what are those end goals that we have to achieve? Because so much of what we do is technical. So when you think about it, it's how we, how, you know, who we're targeting, how we target the data points that we use, the, you know, is, is it geo-mapping that we have to do and look at heat mapping of where the customers are and then how we actually translate that into media channels and how, what's the best, you know, in order to get the KPI and, the, and reach those objectives that the client has, has set. So it's, that, it's a very different type of um, technical almost inspiration that the media side gets. It's very different from creative. We're much more, I think, logical and about the, our approach. <laughs> the dagger straight to the heart no, but, there. But, you know, we are. We are much more, you know, it's like a game of chess for us where we're there actually, the creatives are actually thinking of the idea and, and that side of things. So it's very different parts of the business actually approach things very differently. In saying that though, I think there's a lot of value in a combined briefing session Mm. Um, or even just collaborating with the media agency and the creative agency together. And oftentimes that doesn't really happen. Um, We're all frenemies, right? And I think that that's something that we all understand. All of the different agencies are vying for different parts of the business and we're always expanding and growing and doing all these different things. So we don't want to share what budgets we've got or what ideas we've got that might encroach on others' territory. But if you can get over that, if you can really look over the egos and the crap that comes along with advertising often and really collaborate together, the true value in advertising is when you're able to see what the media team are envisioning. And you're able to see how they want to bring it to life within media because your creative is only as good as the media is. And so if you've got a really fantastic media plan uh, that's going to reach a million thousand different people and um, really engage them frequently and you've got all the budget in the world to do it, but your creative doesn't fit that plan, you're not going to work and it's not going to be of any value to that audience or to that business. So that collaboration, I think, is super important. So those combined briefing sessions, um, any kind of combined tissue sessions that we can have, all of that is really important moving forward. And just to G's point, like when we um, see the creative from a media point of view, like I worked on the Coca-Cola account and we had a Powerade campaign that we were working uh, working on and the uh, concept, the, the media channel was predominantly outdoor. We had buses, for instance, bus backs. And one of the concepts, the creative concepts that were, came through was stop the bus, I want to get off and run from here. Now, that campaign didn't translate when it was on the back of a bus. It was better to be on the ad shell so the people on the bus could actually see the ad shell. And it made sense to anyone walking past or driving past now, so we moved in media, we moved the media channel from the back of the bus to the actual ad shell itself, the bus stop, so that we enhance the creative. We wouldn't be able to do that if we don't see the ads before they go into media. Mm, so, yeah, so working together is so important. Yeah, that's why often when we get a brief, for me it's really important that I sit down with the media team and say, hey, I know you haven't got your media brief yet, but I just want to hear about what kind of channels you're thinking about when you think of this campaign. And it's not going to be concrete. There's always changes and that sort of thing, but it's really important for me to know, okay, it's we're thinking about, TV, we're thinking about digital, we're thinking about social. And then I can work within those spheres because I know that the concept might have to migrate, it might have to move, but we can work together on what that looks like and what the best outcome is. This makes me really fascinated actually as to what actually happens next. So we give you the brief, say we have the face-to-face, what happens next? Yeah, what kind of meetings or what kind of, how do you get the team together and get it sort of happening? So it depends on the brief. If it's a what I call a churn and burn, so it's like just get me this, I've got this, and I, I don't need that, then we just get on. Like we give it to the person that's relevant and then it goes into the system and it and it basically gets churned out. And, and that's no disrespect to those briefs, but that just tends to be. But if we've got a bigger brief and it tends to be, it needs, you know, different groups together and all that sort of thing, we'll come together. We'll talk about the brief. We'll work out who's going to take undertake which role. 
often it starts with the insight. So immediately, you know, someone like myself goes away, develops all the research and the insights, you know, that come out of that. And then we'll start feeding into the various people or the various uh, divisions. So those, a lot of that research and insights might go to someone like G. She's then using that for creative. Um, it also goes to the media, what I call the implementation planners. So they'll be sitting there thinking about the channel. So if I say I want video, they then think about what type of video, they, how can they deploy video and what is it, where, what are the channels that would be best for that you know, that kind of the, the insights that I've built, I've built out. So we tend to do it that way. And we're very channel neutral when that, that comes about that way. So we also often sit there and say, it's not an ad. It's actually, you need to educate. So it's a content piece. It's a m much more educational and, um, or we need to marry that with an ad. You know what I mean? Like, so we'll, we'll really do look at it a little bit, very, much more broadly and very differently. And then, you work out who you're going to bring in based on based on that approach. Mm, and I think um, those insights are really that jumping off point and we really need them, you know. So from a creative um, standpoint, we get briefs all the time with audience insights and that sort of thing included. You need to have that level of strategy outside of what's included in the brief as well. And that's really important for us to get that macro view um, and then really narrow down onto who these people are, what we can do from a segmentation perspective, and then how we can understand them to develop separate insights that might not be included in that brief. So for example, it might be, I don't know, we might be uh, looking at a zoo <laughs> as our brief. And then we go out and say, okay, well, who's going to attend the zoo? And then GDubs develops 10 different profiles. And then what we do next is obviously my background strategy. So I jump in and I put myself in their shoes and say, well, what am I feeling? What am I thinking? How how am I approaching the zoo? Or what's the reason for me attending or even considering that as an entertainment option? Uh, and then you take that and what you're feeling and what your gut really tells you, and then you pull it out into um, where are the key insights? What are the problems we need to overcome? How do we really challenge those problems and pressure cook them, or pressure test them? Um, and then we move into like concepting for for the creative guys. It's really just getting in a room and that's why COVID makes it really hard right now it's locking ourselves in a room like we're in the studio today and not letting each other out until we have that one hook that we're all going to kind of jump from um, and so that's really what we try and do is we we try and take all that information that we've distilled together as well as a part of the brief and we try and figure out where we're going to dive in and how we're going to make it happen how are you doing that creative stuff online I have that with their team. How do you create a whiteboard session online? It's hard. You can't. And that's the reality of it. Um, the reality of creativity is that it is based on people bouncing off of each other. And on Zoom calls, you get fatigued. Like I mentioned before, people feel like they don't have the opportunity to speak as well. Um, everyone's on mute these days too. So whenever I do my creative sessions, I make sure that there's actually a rule. No one can be on mute, you know, and you have to be in a space that isn't your at home desk. So you've got to be either on the couch or at your dining table or in your kitchen or wherever else. For me, mostly it's on the balcony outside, but wherever you feel like you can be yourself. That's the really important thing is that you need to feel um, like you can be creative. But then there's also things like our designers and our web developers, they're not creative during the day. So it doesn't matter what you do or where you put them or what rules you have in place. If you've got a creative session from three till four, sometimes people rock up and they're not feeling creative. And that's also okay. It's also okay to acknowledge that you need to overcome these barriers and maybe just have a bit of a chat with them about what they can do. They can go away and then come back to you when you're ready or when they're ready. Um, but sometimes that's at one o'clock in the morning. And, you know, for someone like me, you just have to deal with it. Like you really just have to deal with it. I feel like that about strategy too. So I can't do any of that research during the day. So I do it all at night. It's only if I've got focus groups that I do it. So I'll get up at three in the morning and do it then because that's when I think clearest. 
I hate actually being disturbed during the day when I'm working like that. Mm. I find it very difficult. And everyone has their different ways of working, mm. you know, like, and I, I generalize when I say the designers and the developers, but even like your account management team, you know, some of them say, I work really well in the morning. So I schedule all my work with clients between nine till 12. And then there's someone like me who I hate doing any kind of strategy or creative development or anything like that during the day because there's so many distractions. There's Slack, there's Zoom, there's emails that come through, there's all of that kind of thing. So I work really late into the night um, and that's the only time that I can do my strategies and my creative development. And so I feel really sorry for my team when I'm the one that says, hey guys, we've got a creative session from three to four today and I'm also not being creative, you know? So it, it swings and roundabouts and the inspiration strikes at any time. Like I used to work with an art director who had a notepad by his, like on his side table and he would wake up in the middle of the night and have this amazing mind boggling concept that he'd just write down and then go back to sleep and then he'd revisit them all the next morning and he'd sometimes have four or five a night and he would go away and figure out those after and it like I said it just you you actually never know when inspiration is going to strike wow that is fantastic that is brilliant um Jay, do you think that there is anything that remote working or COVID has added to the creative process that's positive because you're talking about it's really hard we're not in a room we can't do this do you think you've there's been any positive I think there is a real positive part about being empowered to be your own creative um and that ultimately comes from there's there's a traditional um, view about creativity and at larger agencies, a lot of that is the creative director is the buck stop and they're the ones that comes up with all the really good ideas or they tell you if your idea is really crap um, and oftentimes it can lead to a lot of demotivation within the team um, and so being away from that environment can also really support people to feel like they have the opportunity to think outside the box and come up with different ideas and so that's a really great thing that's come about obviously it also really depends on the agency that you're working at or the team that you're working within for us there's also like Kara in my team she loves working from home and she doesn't love it as much as she used to when she had the option to work in the office but um, for her it's having the space to breathe and the space to really think about things and so that's also what working from home does give you is that you're not always tapped on the shoulder and you're not always said like, oh, hey, gee, like, can I just ask you a really quick question? Like, no, you can't now because you've got to schedule a meeting with me. So I've got some extra time. I think there's this element of, um, you know, necessity being their mother of invention. And so we've had to figure out new ways of doing things, which is wildly creative. Yeah, absolutely. And like I said, I think it's it's anything that works for you is going to work well. I think it's more the sense of team, you know, working from home is, is sort of destroying slowly, but surely, but, but I think also we're doing lots of things to try and help get build around that. So it's that team uh, effort that's a bit mm. of a problem, mm. I think, more so than the actual work. All right. Okay. Here's one I've always wondered. Is there such a thing as overbriefing, being too prescriptive? I would say if you're starting your brief with I just want or I'm really just looking for, then yes, you're being overprescriptive. So if you're writing the script yourself, if you're saying all the different media channels and ad units that you really want included in there and you want to, you know what the split is for each different media channel and um, cost for the creative that you're really looking for, then yes, you're being too prescriptive. I think there's a thing between giving the parameters to someone and then just telling them what you're looking for. And the word just is kind of the the building block of understanding that you're over prescribing what you really want. So that, when I talked before about churn and burn clients, the or briefs, those um, briefs that are very prescriptive, they are they are what we call churn and burn. So you don't have to think about it. You know exactly what's what's where it's going to go, what needs to be done, um, and then you hand it off accordingly to the right people within the team. So it becomes more of an implementation than 
actually having to sit there and really think about it. It's not necessarily always a bad thing, though. And I think I want to highlight that is that there is always the need for that work because as a marketer, you know exactly what you need at at specific times. And you might just need a video that's going to go on social and you might just know that it needs $40,000 behind it with this particular targeting. And that's there's always value in that. That's Mm. totally fine. Um, It's just making sure that you're aware of what you're asking for and when to ask it, I think is, is the big piece. And also explaining that to the agency and just saying, you know, look, I, I understand this is a really prescriptive brief. I get that I'm just asking you for X, Y, Z, but that's what we need right now. And oftentimes we'll say, yeah, fair enough. You know, we get it. Well, yeah, most of the time we do. But the other, but also when we go back and we say, actually, this is not right. Like we work with a retailer at the moment where I'm trying to explain to them that rather than a single buy versus a multi buy, and we've got all their sales data. So we're able to prove that they actually increase sales in the markets that they do multi buys versus single uh, station buys is a better way to go within the same budget. Everything is exactly the same, same sort of um, medium. But we're just talking about extending the volume of uh, media owners that we're working with as opposed to as opposed to just working with one because it's actually proving to be better for their business. But they've got this misconception or this perception that it's actually better just to be with one station and just to have their money with one station. But it's not working for them as well. So sometimes those those prescriptive kind of briefs, you actually do need to listen to what we're trying to tell you as well, particularly when we've got the evidence that shows that it's actually better for you to perhaps do things slightly different. What does an overly prescriptive brief make you feel? We actually feel disappointed for the client. Like we often will sit there and say, oh, they could do so much more and they could achieve so much more if they just thought like this. But often we can't, you know, you, we, we're either not articulating ourselves properly, we're not um, explaining what you could do or we're not demonstrating enough. But other times the client just doesn't want to know. They just want this is what it's going to be and, and that's it. So often it's, it, we feel it's not us that is, being, is disappointed. We feel disappointed often for the, for the client themselves because we, of, we will often, won't we, G, have a conversation about, oh, my gosh, they could do so much better if they did this. And we get really excited about your success too. You yeah. know, like your success is our success. So when we see something and we know that it might not work or we just have this gut feeling like something else could work better, we get really upset and disappointed when the prescriptive brief doesn't work how you thought it might have or it doesn't do as well as we think something else could have. And so that's why I think we we often try and push people into a different direction or we try and convince people um, and that's purely because we want to make sure that there's the best outcome always because we're only as good as our last job and that's something that Dubs and I say to each other all the time and we say to mm. clients all the time as well is that if you've got a prescriptive brief and you've told us exactly everything that you're looking for and that you want from media and creative and it doesn't work, then we're the ones that have that to fall on our shoulders. And it's really disappointing for us to then see a client potentially walk away over something that we feel like we could have changed or we could have improved for them. So do you give that feedback to the client then? Depends. We try. We try. We try to. I think it really depends on the relationship that you have with people. Also, as an agency, you're in a really vulnerable position because you are reliant on that business. And it's really sad when you might not be able to have that conversation or have an open relationship where you can have a discussion that might be a little bit tricky with someone um, because you're worried that you're going to lose their business if you don't just take that prescriptive brief on. Yeah, and so look, we do try. Um, often we try, but it's you know you only hear what you want to hear, don't you? So that's um, that's often the the case. But Prue, I've got a question for you. You've asked us a lot about the brief and everything. How do you feel about an agency's response when you give a brief? It's a really great question. So. You've given me a little insight into what happens 
on your side when we send the brief over. To give you an idea on our side, and I know when, when we get to that point of that day, um, you know, you coming back with a response to the brief, it's a really big day in our calendar, actually, that appointment time. Moment. <laughs> um, it is, it is. We feel a lot of excitement. We can't wait to sort of hear uh, what you've come back with. And I must say there's also some nerves on our side too because what we've asked you to do is to challenge us. And so we are working with that material, uh, you know, that target audience, that uh, product all the time and in amongst our stakeholders and, you know, looking at results all the time. And we've asked you to show us something new that will challenge us. So part of that is you want to, I feel like I want to make sure I'm open to it. So there's that little bit of a challenge to getting ready for that meeting. So I'd say probably firstly in the brief, I think what I'm really listening for is that you've taken in what the brief was all about. So I love hearing back, you know, what I put in there or what we talked about was the problem or the objective or that kind of thing. And so having that initial dialogue through the the rationale in the beginning is really great because it sort of it brings you back because the thing is we've done the brief you've gone away and thought about it intensely for that period of time we haven't really visited it in that time and so having that kind of coming back um and then the next thing probably would be that challenge aspect so um even though that's kind of excitement and there's different things um that's what I want to feel I want to feel that it's kind of pushing the boundaries. It's something that I haven't seen before. And the thing that actually makes a difference, I think, is when even though I'm feeling that challenge, you also make me feel comfortable and confident about taking not even the risk but just going into this new area. And I think that's a little bit maybe about, um, you know, the confidence in which it's put forward. So we sort of... You can sort of feel which is your real main idea because it's, you know, it comes through in the way that you're presenting as well. So um, sort of looking for that. And I'd probably say the other bit is what I was talking about before is um, I'm thinking about can I sell it? So particularly in B2B, you know, this is if it's a large brief, um, it's likely to be something that we'll have for a while. Um, it's really important to have internal buy-in. So I'm kind of balancing it with, oh, that's awesome, new idea, and, I, and I'm kind of also thinking about all the stakeholders involved and um, how, you know, that next part of the process is going to go. Um, and so in that um, response time, I think if you're able to add value in your response by kind of showing how the idea extends, we had that the other day, G in the um, print trade show mm. response and you were talking about how the idea will kind of keep going and how we could use it. That really, really helps because it feels like uh, I can see it and I know how I'm going to be able to sell it internally and how it might kind of extend in what we do and also elements outside of scope, so things that weren't in the brief and if you're weaving those in, it kind of helps. It gives me a feeling like you've considered the whole and it also is a really easy way for me to be able to see how it will work. Yeah, yeah, right. It's so interesting that you talk about that tension because I always say to my team, storytelling is the biggest part of what we do, especially when it comes to these responses. So the brief at the start that we regurgitate, but we kind of annotate to what we've done and how we've taken it, giving you that tension and that hook and then breaking that tension with how we're going to solve your problems. That's always the formula that I walk into these presentations with because I know it's exciting for you. And it's so great to hear that that actually works. <laughs> it does. It does. It does. We. It's sort of like the, um, the feeling of kind of getting at the top of a, a slide. We know we're going to go on kind of a an experience um, being in that session. So actually I talked about, you know, selling it internally, but part of what's in my mind is, is it going to work for the customer? Mm. Is it going to achieve the results? You know, thinking about the original objective. So when, you know, you sort of weave into that um, thoughts you've had about how that's going to land with the customer and, and all of that kind of thing, all of those things give you confidence that, that that's 
a right thing to do. Now, Prue, Pat's winding us up. He's he's busy sitting there. He's got his bloody clock on and he's watching. He's going ding, ding, ding. Time's up, guys. Stop talking immediately. Stop talking immediately. But I feel like we've only just scratched the surface. So you're going to have to come back again and finish this because we've only just got to the brief. What's next? Like we really are going to have to start talking about the other layers that go in behind the scenes. I would love to. Prue, thank you so much for spending time with us this morning. It has been so good. You've been voted the best the best host that we've had on the, on the show, even shut down the leaf blower next door, which <laughs> yeah. was an incredible feat. But it's been great for someone to kind of ask us the questions and challenge us for a change. So I really hope we haven't let you down and you've got some valuable insights from this session. Great. That was awesome. Thanks for having me, guys. So if you want to get in touch with Prue Carlton, we will put her contact details in our bio. You can contact me via our own trusty Richard Turner, or RT as we call him, and we'll put his link in the bio too. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening, and we will chat with you next time. Yeah, keep safe, everybody. Protect yourself, your families and friends, and thanks for listening. Do come back now. 